Well, hey there. Welcome back to Not Another Horror Podcast. Now, as you all know, I'm your host and curator of all things strange and unexplained, Anthony Rossetti. And I'm going to be honest with you guys. This episode was supposed to be a different episode, but plans change. (laughs) And um, since I feel like you and I, we can be frank with one another, um, I kind of fell asleep while editing it. So not something I wanted to release to you if it couldn't even entertain me. But this is neither here nor there. (laughs) So tonight, since it is Halloween... Well, it's almost Halloween. And where I'm at, it's cold and rainy. And I figure what better way than to let you guys get to know me a little bit more. Because tonight, I'm going to tell you my own ghost story. And then I'm going to tell you a few more tales that I grew up knowing and are also kind of my favorite. Yes, The title of this episode is A Mississippi Haunting, but some of the tales that I'm going to tell you aren't exactly in Mississippi. But yeah, anyways, enjoy the new intro. Now, you might be asking, why ghost? You know, um, to tell you a little bit about myself, I grew up in a very haunted house. Well, I'm not going to say the house itself was haunted. It was more so the land. See, where I grew up, Tippa County, Mississippi, it it has a lot of bad juju uh, from... Native Americans dying on the land to parts of it basically being one big plantation. There's a lot of bad energy attached to this place. Now, I, for one, I am a firm believer in the supernatural. I wouldn't call myself a medium, but I am very sensitive. And honestly, I try not to have those experiences uh, much these days. But for some reason, things tend to keep happening. And I actually went on my first uh, paranormal investigation a few days ago. So, yeah. (laughs) But the story I want to tell you about tonight is one from my childhood. Now, as I told you, I grew up in rural Mississippi. The house that we lived in when I was a kid. It was actually two houses. Basically, we lived on my grandmother's land and um, she had her own house and we had ours. A lot of strange things would happen in that house. 
things that I still, for whatever reason, can't seem to wrap my head around. Like things disappearing and reappearing. People talking when there was no one there. Being in the house alone and hearing someone cough. And yeah, so you can imagine. It's pretty terrifying. Now, my aunt, she always told me that the dead can't hurt you. They can only make you hurt yourself. I'm not sure how true that is, but I'm not taking any chances. So one day, I came home from school. I had to have been like eight or nine. And my aunt had this bedroom that she called the black bedroom. She loved to decorate it with um, Asian furniture, wallpaper, things like that. And I was not allowed to go in it. <laughs> but for whatever reason, that room always terrified me. It was at the back of the house. The door was always open. But every time you would see it, it just looked like a void of nothingness inside of it. I never really felt comfortable going in there or being in there. I always felt like someone was watching me. And maybe they were. So, as the story begins, like I came home from school and I was not allowed to play in my school clothes. Um, a lot of you who are in your 30s, you probably remember um, your parents not letting you basically play in your good clothes. <laughs> so, when I got home, no one was there. But I knew that I had to change clothes because I knew that my grandmother, you know, she would say something. So I went in the house and when I went into the kitchen, the kitchen was closer to that black bedroom. I heard a man cough. Now, it terrified me because I was there alone. I was by myself. No one was supposed to be there. Did someone break in? Uh... I wasn't really sure, but I said, maybe my ears are playing tricks on me. Then I heard him cough again. Now this, it rattled me a little bit, but I said, it's just my mind playing tricks on me because that room was terrifying and the mind is a powerful thing. Like it, it can create things that aren't there. Well, I decided to go to my bedroom and change clothes. So I go into my bedroom, which was on the opposite side of the house. And I close the door. I lock it because I still think someone is in the house with me. And we had a floor furnace. And I remember hearing... Someone walk in that floor furnace. It really sent chills up my spine. And I, I'll i never forget that sound. That slow walking sound. Like someone was just dragging their feet on a floor furnace. If any of you have a floor furnace, then you, you know what I'm talking about. But again, I played it off. And I tried to think maybe... It was the floor furnace coming on. It was the middle of July. 
So I try to shrug it off and I begin to change clothes and I pull my shirt over my head. And the moment that I do that, the coldest hand that I had ever felt touched me on my shoulder. Now, <laughs> my blood basically left my body. I was so terrified. I took off running and nobody was there. That was the scariest thing to me is that nobody was there. The, the room was empty. The door was still locked. Nobody had entered that room. So who touched me? Like the, the hand, I can still feel it just thinking about it. I could just feel how it touched like the back of my shoulder. No human being should be that cold. It's like a block of ice. And to this day, I still wonder what it was. But things didn't stop there because it's like once it knew that it could scare me, it really started to, uh, Fuck with me. <laughs> From hearing like footsteps and oh, just thought I heard something right now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, hearing footsteps and coughing and hearing people call my name in the woods behind the house. The whole land was just a bad vibe, basically. And one of my favorite stories is how um, I, you know, as, as some of you may not know that I am a photographer and uh, I got my first camera and it was, uh, you know, a film camera. And I took pictures of that house for a school project. And for whatever reason, Every picture was blank. Now, I know that you say it could be the settings or, or whatever, but it's like the house could not be photographed, which was also creepy. And to top it all off, if you want to say it was just the camera, I mean, I know the settings. Even then, I knew the settings. But uh, I also used a instant Polaroid camera later. And... When I would take the picture, nothing would come out, but the film was disappearing. It's, it's things like that that really make me wonder what was like what was going on there. Now, another event that happened in that house that terrified me was one night I was getting ready for bed. I was like 10 at the time. Now, people might... If you believe in the paranormal, then you know that children tend to be very sensitive. Now, I was a very sensitive kid when it, it came to stuff like this. It's like they sought, they sought me and I just, I was, I don't know. <laughs> like, even now, I love the creepy things, but ghosts, uh, I don't know. But one night, 
when I was uh, sleeping in my bed, the door was open. I always slept with the door open. Well, the bathroom was on the other side. The light shone in. And I, I could see the bathroom light, from, you know, from my bed. So I've always been a night owl. I've always stayed up at night. Even as a kid, you know, it was something I was allowed to do. I probably shouldn't have <laughs> looking back at it, but hey. I'll never forget that night because that's when it happened. That's when my room started to shake. Like there was an earthquake. The bed itself trembled. I mean, I was I was terrified. Like I thought it was an earthquake. But the most shocking part to me, the one that that scared me, that made me scream, made me cry, was when I looked in my door. I saw the shadows of a group of people in that bathroom. Now the bathroom was, was tiny. There's no way a bunch of people could even fit in that bathroom. But they were there. I could see their shadows. That was so scary. I, I screamed for my aunt and she came, you know, running and she ran in and they, they, they just disappeared. Now, there's a whole bunch of stories from that time that I could tell you, and I will, but there's still one more. And that was this girl that seemed to enjoy my family a lot. It was a little white girl, and she always adorned like 18th century clothing. I remember her, uh, I, I saw her, it's just as real as I could probably see you in person. She really got out of showing herself to the men in the family. Like my uncle saw her, I saw her, and this is what confirmed that I was not crazy because one morning I woke up and she was sitting at the foot of my bed. Now, I, for whatever reason, I couldn't talk to her. I couldn't move. She was just sitting on the edge of my bed looking at me with this blank stare. And she touched me. Her hand was also as cold as ice. But the weirdest part about this is that when she left or disappeared, whatever she did, she was not there anymore. I could move again. And when I looked at the bottom of my foot, there was a number written on it. A number that I have no idea to this day. Like, I still don't know what it, it meant. And I asked people in my family and they were like, maybe you just stepped on a newspaper and it just rubbed off. Yeah. I don't think it works like that. <laughs> but my uncle also um, saw her and she ran around the house and uh, he tried to catch her because there was this random white girl, <laughs> you know, <laughs> running around our house. And the moment that he got around the house to catch her, she had disappeared again. 
if you want to hear more stories about this place that I grew up, I mean, I could definitely share them with you. I mean, the, the list is honestly endless. And the fact that multiple family members had these experiences, you know, kind of justifies it for me. And I'm going to be 100% with you. Um, that land, that house, I truly believe is evil. There's no other way to put it. The animosity, the hatred that our family had while living there, it ceased to exist when we all moved. Like We didn't understand why we had been mad or why we were lashing out at one another or why things happened the way they did, why things would just disappear and reappear. We really had no idea. But that's my story on that end for the night. Now I'm going to tell you about one of my favorite urban legends. Or maybe she's real. And that is Big Liz. Now, if you haven't heard of Big Liz, well, let me tell you the story. It is a... Uh, an old folktale from Maryland. See, Big Liz was a slave girl who lived during the Civil War. Now, I know you're thinking like she might have been a giant, but she was like around six feet. I mean, pretty big for, you know, a girl back then. Her master used her and his other slaves to deliver supplies to Southern troops. Big Liz managed to tell Union soldiers where the shipments were going and how many deliveries were intercepted by the North. The master of the plantation was a firm supporter of the Confederate president and had committed to send as much food as he could to the Southern Army. Things were going well at first, well, until the Yankees began attacking the master's supply line. The master suspected a traitor among his slaves and soon discovered that the Yankee spy was Liz. They they say that she was like a behemoth of a girl, but <laughs> again, she was only around six feet tall. So I'm not sure why they refer to her as a behemoth, but that's how the story goes. They said that she could pick up two full-grown pigs, one under each arm, and carry them over to the slaughterhouse without assistance. If he confronted her directly and she fought back, she would tear him to pieces. So the master came up with a different plan to rid himself of the spy. He approached the giant girl and asked her to assist him with his special task. He told her that the president, Jefferson Davis, had entrusted him with a large chest full of gold to keep it out of Yankee hands and wanted to bury the chest where it would never be found. The girl's eyes gleamed when she heard his terrible lie. The master knew she was already planning to betray the existence of the chest to the Yankees. 
The master made Big Liz carry the heavy trunk several miles out into the swamp and asked her to dig a deep hole for the trunk. He sat at his leisure while she worked and strained for hours against the muddy ground, which kept oozing back into the hole. When the slave girl was completely exhausted, the master decreed the hole to be large enough for his war chest. Wearily, Big Liz dropped the shovel and pulled the heavy chest down until it lay at her feet. Then she started to climb out of the deep hole, but the master barred her way. And Big Liz gazed up at him in sudden fear as he loomed over her. Traitor! Yankee spy! He hissed. There is only one path open to a traitor. The master swung his sword, and the sharp edge of the blade cut clean through her neck. Her head went rolling away into the tall grass as her body toppled across the chest. The master heaped dirt over the chest and the body of the girl who had betrayed him. Briefly, he considered finding her head and burying it in with the body, but it was too dark to go wandering in the dangerous marshland. And he knew that scavengers would make short work of the head when they found it. As he walked towards home through the dark swamp, he became aware of a prickling sensation at the back of his neck, as if someone was watching him. The master walked faster as clouds obscured the light of the moon. His teeth chattered as a breeze cut through him like the sharpened blade of the sword at his side, and his straining ears picked up the sound of footsteps on the path behind him. The master was filled with a terrible, superstitious dread of demons and witches and ghosts. He broke into a panicked run, fleeing up the path as fast as his legs would carry him. To his relief, he saw the lights of his house rise before him, and knew he was home. As he rounded the back corner of his house, he was confronted by a massive, dirt-encrusted figure that glowed with blue fire. The smell of rotting leaves and marsh filled his nostrils as his eyes raised up and up the tall creature until they rested on the stump of its neck, where a head had resided only an hour before. Then he heard a chuckle from the creature's side and he saw the phantom's head tucked under her arm. The master stumbled backwards, pleading desperately in fear as the ghost placed her head upon the ground with one hand and grabbed the collar of his shirt with the other. The murdered girl snapped the master's neck in two and dropped his dead body to the ground beneath his bedroom window. Then... Big Liz gathered up her severed head and vanished into the darkness. They say that on the anniversary of her death, the ghost of Big Liz still may be seen roaming the swamplands near her old home. And if you want a treasure, well, there's a bridge that you have to go to. And once you get to that bridge, you have to hunk three times. Legend has it that if you do that, Big Liz will appear in front of you. 
Don't try to start your car because, of course, it will not start. And you will have to follow her to the treasure. Now, if you decide to take it, maybe she'll spare you. Or maybe she will cut your head off the same way her head was cut off. I don't know. Don't ask me. I'm just a messenger. <laughs> now, the next story that I want to share with you isn't exactly a horror story. It's a romantic story. Everyone loves those, right? <laughs> it's a romantic story between two ghosts. Now... If you've been to New Orleans, yeah, I'm going to talk about New Orleans. (laughs) If you've been to New Orleans on a show of Tuesday, then you might notice some restaurants um, having empty tables where no one is sitting at them, but there's food on the table. Well, this is a, a custom that originated from the story I'm about to tell you. You see, when Mardi Gras balls were held in the French Opera House, one night a young man from an eastern city paid no attention to all the bright lights being shown and the bands and all that good stuff. Instead, he stared the whole time at a lovely Creole girl seated on the opposite side of the balcony. At last, she looked his way, and it seemed that once her gaze met, She was as powerless to look away as was he. The young man smiled and a flicker of a smile was returned. Then he rose, made some excuses to the friends he was with and strolled into the lobby. Later he confessed that he did not know how he was so positive, but somehow he knew the girl would join him. And in a few minutes she walked quickly through the crimson curtains, and then stood just beyond them, her face very red, for it was a period of when girls still blushed. The young man went swiftly to her side and said words he could never recall, except that among them was a suggestion that they leave together at once. The girl went with him without saying a word, But outside, she said, you have done a very wicked thing. You made me come against my will. No, he said, it was your fault. I was with my fiance, she said. You have ruined my reputation. If I've done that, he replied, then I'll have to marry you, won't I? However, It might be an idea if we had supper first. So they went into the Royal Street restaurant. And the young man told the waiter that love made him hungry. And that they would have anything and everything that the waiter might suggest. And while the food piled up upon the table, the couple told each other their names. All about the past of each and what their future would be like. They sat there all night, talking and eating and drinking wine, 
In the morning, they went together to the Ash Wednesday Mass at the St. Louis Cathedral, and then they were married quietly by one of the priests. And the young woman took her husband home to her frantic family who had searched for her all night. A few days later, the young man took his bride north, and neither of them ever saw Mardi Gras again. For before summer was over, as always happens in such romantic tales, a girl had died. Then came the most startling development of the story. A few days before the next Mardi Gras, the proprietor of the restaurant where the couple had spent the morning hours after that day a year ago received a check and a strange request through the mail. The widower asked that the same table he decorated with flowers and that the same food be served in the same way it had been when the couple had sat there. This was done. The next year came another letter and another check. And they continued to come for more than 20 years after that each Mardi Gras time. And finally, every year, the owner of the restaurant complied with the request. Finally, one year later, came a letter from an attorney. The man who had been buying the ghost dinners had died. But he had left a request in his will. If a large sum of money, which was to pay for his annual commemoration of his love affair for as long as the restaurant remained in business. Many people believe this is only a tale, but it is a story they tell and something of the kind must have occurred for every Mardi Gras night. If you go to this restaurant, you'll see a waiter setting places for two. There are always flowers on the table and decorations in carnival colors. Then silently and seriously, a waiter slowly serves the fine foods and wines of an elaborate dinner for two. No one even seems to remember the name of the couple, or they won't tell you if they do. But the ritual continues year after year. And some say in the early mornings of the night, in the quarter, you'll see that couple having one last dinner, well, at least until next year. What can I say? I'm a sucker for a good romantic tale about someone dying. <laughs> well, I think this episode, you know, it's been a little long, but I'm going to tell you one more thing. So for those of you that are into haunted houses and exploring, I want to tell you about a house in Holly Springs, Mississippi that I visited um, a few days ago. The house is called Linden Hill. Now, if you Google it, yes, you will see it. It is a very beautiful house. And I'll be honest with you, I went in expecting ghosts, but the house is just such a sight. And I would personally like to thank Stacy. And her husband, Jim, for inviting us in, having us over. Um, so the house is apparently haunted. And when I tell you guys it's something that you have to see to believe, 
If you doubt the paranormal, go to their house. Um, I they have tours. I think it's only on like in October, but it is a surreal experience. And there is a ghost in there that is named William. William um, loves to turn the lights on and off, and he will actually reply to you with um, a light switch. <laughs> and there's also Beulah Hart, I think her name is Hawthorne, um, who was one of the, I think she was like one of the uh, original families that lived in the house. And uh, she tried to kill her parents. And mental illness is no joke. It's no laughing matter. Back then, um, she was, I think she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So, yeah, she tried to kill her parents and they had her committed. And that's where she spent 50 years in the Jackson um, Mental Hospital. So, her ghost is there and she loves to, one, make you smell roses and she also loves to tilt pictures and she also will say hello when you walk into the office <laughs> and there's also another one named um stripe stripe is bald and he likes to show himself to people who are skeptics and i kid you not he um went on a trip with one of her grandchildren and he apparently said that he would be back in four days so <laughs> fun times um the house is gorgeous i think stacy and her husband did a phenomenal job decorating it and i cannot stress that enough when you go into it you you probably won't be looking at the ghost you'll be thinking wow where can i get this <laughs> but uh yeah, I just wanted to tell you guys, like, if you want a legit hunting, you want to see some real ghosts, go there. Um, I'm a believer, uh, but I went with uh, someone that wasn't a believer. And let me just say they are a believer now. <laughs> but uh, the whole history of the town of Holly Springs, from the cemetery to all the other houses... Um, I'll tell you just a little bit about it. With most places in the South like this, including New Orleans, um, the yellow fever took out half of Holly Springs back in the 1800s. The well-to-do people were able to leave, but the people that weren't stayed and died. And uh, the four years in the house was basically used because, you know, at the time... The dead people were brought there and then the coroner would come pick them up. But so many people died from the yellow fever in Holly Springs that they actually had to take all of the bodies and they placed them on the courtyard of the courthouse. So, yeah. <laughs> now, if you know the history of things like this, you also know that in New Orleans, the same thing pretty much happened and people were being burned in piles. It's not it's not very fun history to think about, but whenever you're anywhere down here in the South, just remember, well, or in the North, well, anywhere, <laughs> just know that someone probably died there and it was horrible and it's probably haunted. <laughs>
that's all I got for you guys today. It's been fun chatting with you. And I hope you know a little bit more about me. Next week we will have the episode that I was supposed to have this week. But I'll be honest, I've enjoyed recording this one a lot more. Until next week, guys. Stay safe, stay sane, and you know the rest. <laughs> Bye.